We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, world? I'm Cameron. And I'm Willie. Thanks. You're welcome. How are you? I'm good. Shut up. <laughs> I promise. I am. Good. You're so... I said shut up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're so good at that. Yeah. Oh. Good. How are you? Are you good? Yeah. yeah. I'm well today. Willie is well. Oh, Good. It makes me. Well. It makes me happy when Willie's yeah. well. Sometimes yeah. Willie's not well. Oh, man, I had we had a couple episodes recently. You know, it's been a couple weeks, but I struggled with the topics. But this week, I'm on it, man. I got to remember that. Fuck, I know recovery. I yeah. know addiction, and I know recovery. Well, and, and I'm here to talk about. And that. that sometimes you're just gonna have those moments. Yeah, I think that's okay. Yeah. So. I want to talk to you today about uh, something that we know a little bit about. Yeah. Okay. We got this topic from our war story today who uh, who was Daniel, local dude. Local guy. I've I, I met this dude before. Yeah. It's one of, the, one of the few that you've actually met. Yeah. I, I don't get to actually, you know, meet a lot of the war stories. Yeah. And that's sad. Yeah. Well. But it's okay. I do feel like I know them, though. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot in common. There's, there's a lot we identify with each other that's what's awesome about it so but daniel's story was uh incredible yeah we talked a lot about the progression progression homelessness um, yeah some homelessness in there and and actually kind of a, a lot of homelessness yeah. in there but i actually really uh appreciated in contrast to where he is now mm -hmm. and he talked about the the aa promises the promises so today we're going to talk about the promises yeah. that are in the uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, if you don't know AA and you're not a big book person, don't be discouraged. These are not promises only meant for people in Alcoholics Anonymous. These promises we have found will come true for you if you work a program of recovery, regardless of what mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, because we found we found through through what, this is episode seventy something. This, yeah, episode. We're up there, seventy something. Yeah, we've had we've had over seventy episodes, and uh, there's there's like these commonalities, regardless of of how people are like identifying whatever program they're getting sober. Like like we found that admitting there's a problem is is something that everybody does, right? You have to recognize the issue. Yeah, regardless of the pathway that you get. Um, you have to do some deep inner reflection. You have to find who you are. It seems like that's that's a universal principle for finding sobriety. You have to make an inventory of your life somehow, some way. That seems to be a universal principle. You have to clean up the wreckage of your past. Well, and you have to decide. You have to make a decision that you want to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and follow it up with the action. You know, and those are universal principles, and they're they're no different in in AA than any other 
place. Like these right. are these are the ways that that people have shared their different pathways to recovery that are universal. It seems you know, and so along with that, you know, it seems universally as they start sharing about what their life is like now. There's these promises that are in there. There's these things that they can share about that we can see and identify and 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 relate to. Yeah. Things that seem to happen regardless as to, um, well, things that seem to happen as a result of our insistence on working a program. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, it never ceases to amaze me how how often we can look at other people's stories or our own stories and see those promises coming true. Yeah. And so let's, uh, let's share what the actual promises are. Um, I want to do a contest really quick though, before we do okay, and make it and, and decide who has the better announcer voice. And then that you person, do. that person will read the promises. You do. No, 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 no. That's not fair. All right. <laughs> we have to say like, give it, give me your best trailer promo. Ready? So I'm going to start. And I'm going to say, in a world, in 1953, okay. in, wait, let me go back, in 1935, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous came to be, two men, one book, <laughs> a generation of triumph, okay. big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> now you try. Give me, give me your best announcer voice, trailer announcer. You got it. Yeah, you got this. Yeah, go. In a world in 1935. Oh Bill shit, Bob. bro! You're not even. You're not even trying. Trying <laughs> hard. Are you? It's hard for me. It's not. It is. I'm gonna give you one more chance. Kay. Okay. Clear your throat. It helps. <clears throat> yeah, there you go. <laughs> in a world in 1930 whatever couple of drunks figured out how to get sober before the <laughs> that's so good that's so good see just you re- doubt yourself just- all right let's let's let the audience vote <laughs> all right Who's going to be the tiebreaker? We only have two people in the audience. I'll, okay. I'll be the tiebreaker. No, Jordan's vote, vote counts as two because he's been here longer. Okay. Ready? Okay. Who is better? Who votes for Cameron? Son of Dude. I get no love. This is what I'm talking about, though. See, you thought that you were not as good. No, I just and didn't want to read. You. <laughs> All right, Willie, let's hear those. Let's hear the promises. Uh, These are the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous. Page 83. Page 83. The big book. This is is, uh, the fourth edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which the big book isn't an actual term. It's not. The the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is not called the big book. It's actually not named that, right? It's Alcoholics Anonymous. The name of the book is Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes. On page 83, here's the promises, and, and, and we'll get into to where they're at. But If we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we are halfway through. 
We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. The feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in self, selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us we, that what we could not do for ourselves. And then it goes on to say, are these extravagant promises? We think not. We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. And then that boom is actually the last paragraph before it moves into step 10. The next sentence is this thought brings us to step 10. So there you go. Those are the ninth step promises, as they're called in Alcoholics Anonymous. I feel like I can't hear those enough. It's such a good reminder for me to know that that's sort of what will happen as a, as a result of me taking the appropriate action. Right. You know? um, some of the, the biggest parts for me in those promises is where it says no peace. You will, you will, you will know peace. Yeah. You will comprehend the word serenity and you will know peace. K-N-O-W. Yeah. And, uh, and I appreciate that because I felt like in the end, that's all I wanted. Yeah. Man, I just wanted to stop ultimate desire the battle in my head that was just continuous and non-stop like i just wanted to freaking just be yeah you know and uh and and so i just i love that i love you will comprehend the word serenity yeah you'll know what serenity is you'll know what peace is you know um that's one of the favorite parts for me and and it goes back to um you know, again, like no matter what the pathways are, whether it's, um, you know, AA or whether it's um, any of the many other ways that we have heard people get sober, it seems like one of the biggest things that they're doing, and obviously they're doing it if they're telling their story on our show, which is they're using their experience to help others, right? right? And that is so crucial. And, and for me, the reason that that's important is because it gives a purpose to all that shit. Yeah. All that stuff had meaning. I can't get rid of it. I can't erase it. And all of a sudden, when I use that to help somebody else, it means that it all happened for a reason. Right. Or you made a reason out of it happening. Sure. Yeah. Not like it was serendipitous, but it, I gave it a purpose yeah. through that process. For sure. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. Like, like, like I need to do that. You know, I need to, I need to bring purpose out of my past, you know? And if I can, if I can remain on this side of the table and I can remain on this side of the message of, you know, this stuff works, um, then I don't regret my past or wish to shut the door. I can look any part of my past square in the eye and say, yeah, I see you. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was me. I did those actions. Those things happened to me. That was my trauma. That was my past, you know, 
It was embarrassing. Yes, it hurt. I see you. And now I'm going to go share it with somebody who doesn't know how to share that same story, you know, and, and it, and it definitely brings power and, and peace within me because then I find out, you know, I'm not alone and they find out they're not alone and they find out yeah. they're not alone, you know, and, and I, I put a lot into, you know, my image, you know, I, I, I put some thought behind my image. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, part of that image is like having this rough looking exterior, which comes from my past, which was a very rough past and bringing it into someone else who may be uncomfortable and showing them that regardless of how I may look behind that image is a strong message of love and hope for other people. And ultimately, I just want to make the world a better place by paying my dues from the past, you know, and the promises help me remember that that's what I'm doing, you know, and that that's what I'll get if I continue to, yeah. you know, um, <clears throat> for me, it's nice not living in fear all the time. It sure is. Yeah. yeah. Like I was just, I was just thinking about, you know, maybe the first time that I heard those promises, I, I feel like, you know, they're not said in every meeting, but they're said in a lot of meetings. Mm -hmm. And um, I know for me, my first couple of meetings, I wasn't hearing anything. You know, I'm <laughs> looking around. Maybe your first couple hundred. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm looking around. I'm judging people. I'm assuming they're judging me. Yeah. I'm already deciding how different they are than me and how different I am than them. And, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm going through those motions and figuring out, like, How'd I get here? Why am I here? I'm trying to figure out and decide that I'm not as bad as these people. I don't need to be here. I'm here on my own accord. Like, whatever. You know, like going through all those other thoughts that I'm not listening to anything. Yeah. But the first time that, you know, I heard the promises and they actually registered with me and I was able to go, huh, really? Is that true? All those things will... will all experience all those things because they're just so freaking far removed from where I'm at in early recovery that it just didn't seem possible. Right. Right. But even for it to be presented to me in that way where it was like, dude, we know how you feel and we know that this is what you want. And these are the promises that, that we will guarantee you if you continue to do this work. And it was like for everything to be like hit the nail right on the head, Boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom. Yeah, I need all that stuff. I need it all. Yeah. You can do that? You can do that? Is that really good? <laughs> you know what I mean? And do you remember like what it was like to hear those? And, and do you feel like you believed them when you, when you did uh, hear them? I, I, I don't remember, and I still can't like remember hearing all of them at, at one time. It seemed like, like I would, people would read them and, you know, certain ones would jump out at certain times. Sure. You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I never looked at it as like a, as a, like an all exclusive type thing, you know, because, you know, there's, there's moments where I'm really vibing on, on, you know, the, the fear of economic, of insecurity, uh, the fear of economic insecurity will leave me. And I'm really vibing on that, you know, because yeah. that's a, that's a huge fear, I think in our society anyway, you know, it's not just, confined to alcoholism or, or anything like that. I think a lot of people fear economic insecurity 
of all walks in life. And, and, and there's moments where I'm working my program, hence working with another person is a huge mm-hmm. one, like sharing my experience from my past, uh, being open and vulnerable to that, uh, that there is no fear of economic insecurity. Like the fear is completely removed of, of me for that moment. And, and so, and then the, there's other times where, you know, I'm, I'm like really living in, in, in the present moment and appreciating, not only just not shutting the door on my past, but appreciating it, you know, but having a little bit of economic fear. You know? mm-hmm. And so they kind of ebb and flow. And so I don't necessarily remember ever hearing them, uh, like all at one time. Um, they, they really started coming about and I started paying attention to them when I w- was in my ninth step. You sure. Know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. then, then it mattered. Like, mm-hmm. uh, up until this last time when I was working the steps with my sponsor, um, <clears throat> I, I did what step I was on and I tried really hard to not to move too fast. Yeah. I yeah, tried really hard, hard to just be where I was at because I recognized my desire to, to, um, it's called creative avoidance. Okay. It's where you take everything that you're not doing and make it more important than what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. (laughs) That's like life. Yeah. So I'd be working step, you know, step six or seven. And, and, and I know that I need to go out and make these amends rather Mm -hmm. than be on step six or seven, you know, or, or wherever you, you may be. I know that it's a better idea that if I put this step on hold and move forward to step nine, then, you know, and I couldn't do that this time. I couldn't do that this last time I got sober. And so when I started working step nine and I, I made the list of people that I needed to make amends to that I was willing to make amends to, um, that's when, you know, I was obviously reading that in the big book. Um, there's another thing called, uh, what's it called where I start noticing more and more. It's like when you buy a white car, all of a sudden you see a white car everywhere. Oh, sure. I I forget what that's called right now, but, uh, uh, it it was kind of like that, you know, now I am on step nine. I've made my list of people and places that I'm willing to make amends to the ninth step promises are being read in every meeting. I'm on step nine. It matters to me now. I start paying attention to it more. And so it was kind of that whole demographic, that whole point of my, you know, step work that, that it really started. And then I started noticing in real time, like these things that were really manifested in my life. Like, yeah, these, these promises have been coming true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another one for me too, that I can think of that, that uh, that I really wanted, and then I was really able to see it manifest itself. Was we will intuitively know, yeah. we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. It's a good one. It's it, <laughs> yeah, it's a great <laughs> one, man. Like, and that you know, like there was a lot that used to baffle me. Like, how do I get through the day without yeah. a drink? What do you mean by toilet paper? That's a great one. Yeah, should I spend my money on toilet paper or booze? <laughs> these situations you <laughs> yeah. you know like how 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 do i how do i pay rent how do yeah. i you know like all of these things like i didn't i didn't know how to do any of this yeah. stuff you know and uh and to be in a position where it was just like you know what all i got to do is think about the next right thing yeah 
And because I could always feel like I knew what the right thing to do was, you know. And if I didn't, luckily in the program anyways, I was able to ask somebody, right? And sometimes they were able to tell me without me asking, mm-hmm. you know, which was also important, you know. Yeah. Not as easy to hear, but I was able to at least identify like, okay, you're probably right. Like you, you obviously know more than I do. I'm the one sitting over here with this much time and you're the one sitting over there with that much time. And so yeah. I'm willing to hear you out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a great one. Like I, I, I agree. Like that, that's a huge one for me. And, uh, what, what comes to mind is like, I remember like needing to do stuff for probation and parole mm. and just, I knew what I needed to do. Yeah. Where in the past I like would have went and got high. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, even knowing what not to do is, is intuitively knowing what to do, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and then the, the great thing about, you know, having a, a group of people that are kind of like minded in sobriety is a lot of times I would I would have an intuition or, I, you know, my conscious would, would kick in and, and I would know what to do, but I wasn't sure of it. And so I could talk to other people about it and and they would help, you know, kind of solidify the decision of of not like stealing shit from work or or whatever even though because it was really confusing early on even the first few years and even even now we've talked about it recently on the show like with the self-checkout stuff like yeah (laughs) having those temptations it gets confusing still and it definitely was an early recovery because you there are patterns of behavior that you've been doing for so long yeah that you forget like the moral argument that's around it like yeah i get that you've been stealing shit for the last 10 years but that doesn't make it right <laughs> and so you know like you really have to decide like well is that is that bad? like i never got caught yeah like, and, have, and and i mean it, it's a huge establishment you know i mean right. daniel daniel yeah. talks about it in his story like mm-hmm. walmart was his number one of, Right. Uh, uh, offender. Offend, well, he said offender and then corrected it, but we'll share that on his story. But, you know, entitlement, you know, I'm, I'm entitled to this because this company has all this millions of dollars in insurance and, and these things. And then, yeah, that's true, but you're not entitled to it. Right. <laughs> they work to get it. Yeah. You get to work for what you want. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so just, just having that ability to know, the right thing at the right moment. And it, and it gets clear a lot of the times, more often than not now, you know, doing the right thing for the right reason is the right thing to do. And it's more clear now. Yeah. Well, I think for me, like it's, it's, it's good for me to hear now the, the promises because I can get really fucking caught up on the quote unquote problems that I have now. Mm-hmm. Right. So I can get really really lost to the fact that if I, if I look at it where I am now and where I was and the promises that have been explained to me as a result of the action I take in this program, Mm -hmm. it's clear to see that they have worked. Yeah. They have come true, but like, I don't always want to look at it that way. Right. Like I'm an alcoholic. My natural instinct is to sort of just catastrophize and make a problem out of everything. Yeah. So even if a billion good things are happening for me, I'll find the one negative thing about it and decide that that's where I want to hang my hat, you know? <laughs> and so, like, it, and, and that's why we continue to go to meetings. We continue to stay plugged in. We continue yeah. to, to work a program. And, and when I hear the promises now, especially, like, if I can really, really 
just pick it apart one sentence at a time and say, yeah, this has happened. Yep. Oh, yes, this has happened. Yeah. Yep. And just really go through the whole thing and be like, wow, they have come true. Yeah. And what a fucking great feeling. Yeah. For me to be in a position where I can look at those and say, they, they have come true. Mm-hmm. And they continue to come true. Yeah, and I and I love them, you know, and and uh, I see on a daily basis where different ones of them have have happened to me on a daily basis, you know, like <clears throat> different different stuff at different times, mm-hmm. you know. But I I've been saying it a lot lately. I, I hit the fucking lottery. Like, yeah, life is good. I love that saying. I say it too. Um, I, I think it's so easy for me to tell that to other people, but then there's moments where I get lost. Yeah. You know, I can say, I can say to you, dude, I fucking, I say this about my wife all the time. I hit the fucking lottery with her, you know, and I really do feel that way. Um, but that's not to say that and I don't then, have moments <laughs> where I'm like, <clears throat> you know? Yeah. We'll lose, we'll lose the desire for selfish things. And we'll think more about our fellows, right? And and ultimately, you know, that's that's where this uh, podcast is coming from. Is is this place where, you know, we we've done step work, we've done meetings, we've we've talked with a lot of people, and now we want you guys to know what we've learned, uh, yeah. Uh, so that hopefully you can hear the one thing that will change the the course of, of direction that you're going in a manner by bringing about a different way of thinking about it or, or solidifying something that you've been thinking about. Cause I don't want it to be about me, right? Like I start getting it to be about me and I lose all my freedom in self. And then I create this self-imposed prison around me, trying to protect me from you hurting me by me, you know, getting uncomfortable or, or whatever the fuck it is. Like, you know, I hate having fear of other people. I hate it. I hate having fear of the world around me, but it's, it's part of the disease that I have. Yeah. Right. And so I go through these processes. I go through this recovery stuff. I go through the steps all the way through one, one through 12 to try to get to a point where I can, you know, you know, stand squarely against the world against myself and know that I'm going to be okay because I have a, I have a history of self-defeating behavior, right? And and I think that there's a reason that that the first part of the ninth step promises start with if we are painstaking. Right. Yeah, we can't forget that that's I mean they, these these aren't promises that are just given to us. <laughs> yeah. There're things there's things we have to they, do. They come with a little bit of work, right? Right? And and uh I think what was so great for me by doing it one step at a time and not worrying about being on step nine when I was on step four was that I was able to be painstaking about whatever phase of my development I was in without regard of like, I want what the promises are promising. Right. And maybe that's psychologically part of the reason I didn't hear them until I was there. Sure. Is because I was, all I wanted was sobriety. Right. And, and sometimes I, I forget that at one time, that's all I fucking wanted. You know, I didn't want a home. I didn't want a career. Right. I didn't want, you know, financial security. Right. I, I, I didn't even really care about mending my relationships or being happy. 
right? Like I was so fucking tired of being sick in my disease that all I wanted was sobriety and I was willing to do whatever it took to get that. And turns out like by wanting sobriety, I get so much more. And I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know I was going to get all this. Right. Well, we, we learn and that's the thing. And, and, and I've heard it said like a thousand times where, you know, somebody will say, if you would have told me everything that I would get as a result of working this program <laughs> in the beginning, I would have told you you were full yeah, of shit. No fucking way. Yeah. And you know, I am one of those people. I will gladly say if you would have told me I would be where I'm at today, you know, eight years ago when I was first in recovery, you know, I would have said you were full of shit yeah. and I would have, and I would have totally sold myself short on what I thought the future was going to be like. Yeah. And, and here I am. And, you know, yet there is this part of me that wants to find an issue with it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's I, called the ism I, in me. I have everything I want, but yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that's a huge one for me. I have everything I want, but it doesn't feel like I thought it would. Yeah. Yeah. And you've said that to me a couple of times where you're like, so you have everything you thought that you wanted and it doesn't feel like you thought I would. Yeah. What the fuck? Well, it's better than what I had. Sure is. You know, it's not what I had. And then, and then there are moments and I, I dare say that it's a more consistent it's not, it's not like this huge flash of, of energy or whatever. It's a more of a consistent mellow gratitude for, for what my life is, right? It's not like this huge up and down. It's, it's just kind of a more even playing field where, you know, I'm, I'm more in this state of being than achieving, right? Like I'm not trying to get to the promises. I'm trying to live my program. You know, because, and it takes a while to get there, you know, and I dare say like at, at 18 years when I have twice the amount of sobriety that I have now, which I don't see any reason why I wouldn't, you know, it, it'll be different than it is now because it's, it's every, every time it doubles, it's, it's different. You know, I'm coming up on 10 years. I'll have 10 years this year and it's way different than it was at five years. Right. You know, the way that I view sobriety in general, the program, the promises, things that I have in my life are so much different, you know, than it, than it was at five years. And, and at 11 years, it's going to be different than it was at six years. And, and so like, I'm okay with that though. Right. Because the fundamental principles behind the process remain growth, progress, not perfection, you know, just keep showing up every day. Do your program to the best of your ability, find somebody else to help explain this stuff, put your story out there, you know, share your experiences so that you find out you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so others know that they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the the biggest things that um, I appreciate about what you said is just the overall sense of underlying gratitude, you know, that I can feel because that was not that was not in my nature to be grateful for anything. Well, how are you going to, how are you going to be grateful for fucking, you know, holding the gun to your head at one time? Right. Right. Like, I mean, everything was happening to me, Yeah, you know, there was nothing that was happening for me. And I was absolutely just in, in a state of 
utter disarray. I, I mean, I'm not explaining anything or talking about anything that's foreign to any other alcoholic, right? Right. Or anybody else that's been in that position with drugs or alcohol or, or just a struggle, depression, mental health, mental illness yeah. or anything, you know, like this is all a part of the territory, right? We get into these modes where it's like we have nothing to be grateful for and the world has has done this to me, yeah. you know? And now, now I can honestly say that when I stop and think about it long enough, because I can get just as caught up as in, in all those things as anybody else, you know, but I can always, always come back to gratitude. I can find mm-hmm. something to be grateful for. And it's sometimes it's more of a process than others, but it, it is always there. And I don't know if that's something I learned in recovery. I think it's something I learned through recovery. Sure. You know, how to be grateful. Um, but But the fact that this is now a part of, you know, the way that I choose to live my life is great. And luckily for me, like I have a partner who understands that as well. And she's gone through her own process to, to accumulate this wisdom, quote unquote wisdom, you know, and she will oftentimes call me out, you know, like, well, maybe you should just choose to be grateful. (laughs) Thanks. Not what I want to hear, but also you're absolutely so grateful for you. Yeah. So grateful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Grate your teeth with gratitude. Yeah, I'm so fucking grateful. I can't stand it right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, and and you know, and it's the truth. It's it's uh, it's sort of just how things are. Yeah. Now. Well, and it, it, you know, it brings up a, a good point. Like like the the dis ease that I have manifests itself in, in, in selfishness, right? Within me, I start me 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 I I I I, I right and and. Me, 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 I, 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 fucking, it, that, that's my problem is me and I, my solution is you and how, right? Ah, good point. Um, cause I don't, I don't get to use chemical solutions anymore. Like that, that ship has sailed a long time ago. It will never work for me to get out of myself. All, all using chemicals will do is get me more into me. Yeah. And then. The world suffers, you know, because we get on this side of the table, we start gaining some respect, some responsibility, some, we start gaining traction in our careers and our homes and our families and our communities. And, and, uh, next thing, you know, you're a well-respected member of society. The, uh, the, the, the consequences of stepping outside of your program become more and more harmful to people in your life. period. I I mean, that's the way it is for me. Like when I, when I step outside of my program, then everybody suffers and, and I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to cause more harm. Like I've already paid that, that debt for the Mm -hmm. harm that I've done. And so, you know, the, the promise is coming true, being able to recognize them, identify them in my life on a daily basis, like look for them. You know, it's a good idea to step back and look for them. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's a part of it, right? Is taking the time, like recognizing when it's time to do that, when it's time Mm -hmm. to step back and look, you know, and one thing um, that I, that I liked about what you just talked about was uh, I've already paid that debt. Yeah. Because I, I can, you know, there's moments where I can still 
put myself through the ringer about certain certain parts yeah. of my past or even certain parts of my sobriety, you know, where maybe I'm not doing it so well. Like we, we talk all the time about food and food is my battle now, Yeah, you know, and I can really put myself to the ringer after, you know, I have a binge or, or whatever the case is. And then to a certain extent, I've got to learn to let that go and realize I've paid that debt. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, listen, everybody around me suffers when I get like that, when I get into these modes um, I'm going to come back. I'm going to pay that debt by not doing it again. Yeah. You know, and, and it's worth me realizing that I've done that and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing, uh, that, uh, that I was sort of thinking about as we were talking was, um, when I get in that mode, it reminds me of a part of Daniel's story and, and people will hear it. Um, but basically, you know, he was, uh, using mm -hmm. and got a visit from his kids <laughs> and it was great oh. for like the first hour yeah and then after an hour he's thinking okay now don't they have somewhere to go yeah. like i've got to use and it just it, it i can identify with that because that's how i get right like that's that's what happens to me when i'm in that mode when i step away from my program i start thinking like even though i love these people they mean the world to me. Yeah, I would never want to do anything to hurt them. Yet I get so selfish, so caught up in me, and so you know, in in my own head, that I forget about those people and yeah. how they feel does does not matter. And now it's just like, okay, go the fuck away because now it's time for Cameron. Yeah, you know, and uh, and just how detrimental that is. And like on the flip side of that, it brings us back to the promises. Right. Like, luckily, I've been promised these certain things if I take certain action. And one of them is that I stop thinking about me and I start thinking about others. Mm -hmm. And I realize that the solution for me getting out of my my head is by helping somebody else right. with their issues. And for, so for sure, Daniel's story was great. as yeah. far as, Like when when it, when it, I just really like that part of his story. And it, and not only it caused him a lot of pain and, you know, like talking about this like it brings up it, and it reminds me that you know the ninth step isn't the only set of promises you know the every step in the big book has a promise but another one that that's really uh that pertains a lot to that phase of recovery are the 10th step promises and 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 that's those ones are ones that i can remember exactly where i was when i first heard really but, yeah and they're probably not as well known no, but there's they're super powerful. Let's let's so, read them. Let me grab okay. the book here. Yeah, I was at a, a cocaine anonymous meeting. Oh, and they read them. So they read from the big book. Yeah, in yeah, CA. So. I've actually never been to a CA meeting. I've been to NA, been to CDA. Obviously, I've been to um, OA. A lot of A's. Yeah. So yeah. Um, can you use your announcer voice? Yeah, so. <laughs> so, um, I love the 10th step promises because they're such a big part of my recovery now, too. So, on page 84 of the big book of Alcoholic, the Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, the blue book, the blue book that you may see at an AA meeting, it's not a Bible. Um, and we have ceased fighting anything and anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. 
We'll seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we'll find that this has happened automatically. We'll see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. This is the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, nor are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. Mm. It does not exist for us. We're neither cocky nor afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react as long as we keep in fit spiritual conditions. And so, uh, I mean, that's, it's so big for me because the insanity of the obsession plagued me my whole life. And by working these steps, becoming willing, uh, you know, making the amends list, being willing to make those amends, having a reflective program on a daily basis where, you know, I'm looking at my wrongs on a daily basis, being willing to correct those things, put me in a position where I was no longer fighting temptation. I wasn't being cocky about it. You know, like I was in a place where I was finally at peace with being an alcoholic with a past, with a problem that has a solution on a daily basis based in spiritual principles. And like, it was just so freeing for me to have that outlined and see it happening in my life so regularly, you know, the fight was fucking over. Yeah, that's the part about it that I like that I think. I hear the most in those is, is we ceased fighting yeah. and it reminds me of just how much a fight it was, how much yeah. it was just a constant back and forth, a struggle, oh. just, no, I don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. Yes, I do. And just, you know, every time. And then, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Oh, I did it. Oh, I hate that I did that. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I can't believe I did that again, yeah. you know, and just the, uh, the constant struggle and just, you know, talks about how it's automatic. It will be automatic. You, it's not that you're good at dealing with the problem. It's that the problem has been removed. Yeah. It's like, whoa. Yeah. You mean like, I won't have to go through this back and forth all the time? Yeah. Eventually it will just be gone? Gone. And we act sanely and normally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's, that's true in my case. Yeah. And, and you know what that is. Right. You know, what does it mean for Cameron to act sanely and normally? Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, like as sanely and normally as Cameron can. Yeah, it's being respectful of other people, like not fucking harming people, going out of your way to to make sure that you're right all the time. Yeah, like, not saying the first thing that comes to my yeah, mind. It's, it's being being respectful and and taking care of yourself. You know, like looking at the highest version of you to give away to the world. It's being a sounding board for other people that are hurting. It's you know like not reacting to insanity all the time just being calm in 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 hard situations it's it's being the example of the person that you want to give out to the world you know it's like all those things you know it's it's this wonderful place where you were where i am the man that i've always wanted to be i am the man that the world deserves to have i'm the father my children deserve i'm the husband my wife deserves i'm the the friend that you deserve like that's what sane and normal looks like for me. It's not living in reaction all the time. Yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not, uh, you know, being defensive and, and harmful all the mm-hmm. time. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, proving my, my position to be right, man. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I heard the other day again, like this, this same expression that I just, I love, and I feel like I want to say it to a million people in a thousand different ways, but would you rather be happy or would you rather be right? Yeah. And, and, uh, I, I think about that because honestly, like the one place that reminds me sort of constantly of the growth that I've received from this program is when I don't react the way that I used to react. Mm -hmm. Like, not that I don't feel like reacting the way that I used to react, but I don't. But you don't. And I stop and I think about what to say before I say it. Yeah. And, you know, that's not always the case. And when I say what just comes to my mind, like I know that, I'm, you know, like it says in there, like spiritually fit, like where am I in my spiritually, am I spiritually fit today? Yeah. Probably not because I totally handled that like an asshole. Yeah. You know, so like what's going on with me? And even in those instances where that might be the case, I know enough now that I can stop, apologize and make amends immediately, you know? Yeah. And, and that's a pretty good feeling. Yeah. Again, gets you out of yourself. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good place to be. Yeah. So the promises are pretty fucking extravagant. Amazing. Yeah. Just like you. Thank you. You know who else is amazing? Uh, Guess. Daniel. Nope. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's Daniel. It's totally Daniel. Um, yeah, actually, Daniel was, uh, was awesome, man. I know we've shared bits and pieces of what his story was like. Um, I can't wait for everybody to hear it because I do feel like they're going to get a lot of value from it. So what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Let's get into it. Good. Yeah. All right. Without further ado, this is Daniel's War Story. All right. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good morning, family, wherever you're at at this moment in time. My name is Daniel and I'm definitely an alcoholic. Mm. So... Not too familiar how to go about this, but my story is my story, so I guess I can't mess it up. Let's start back. Uh, I'll just take a, a quick uh, qualification of myself and, and uh, where I was before I get to what happened. And, uh, you know, I want to say I was maybe about 14, maybe 12 when I took my very first drink. And it was at that moment in time that I realized I remember I was with my grandpa. It was a family reunion. We just got back from Germany. And, um, playing softball, all the relatives are there, and my, my, my dad, my, my grandpa, they're all having a couple Budweiser's, and they said, um, and I looked at him like I was the big man, I was like, what is, what is that? And my grandpa handed it to me. I remember taking my first drink right then and there at the, at the family reunion. I did uh, the ultimate, I, I put it to my mouth, I took this first, I put it all, a nice little mouthful, and then I stopped, and I held it for about 30 seconds. Worst thing I could ever did. It was at that point in time I realized I didn't like alcohol because I went back around the tent and I threw it all up. <laughs> so I, I know that when I drink, when I did become an alcoholic, it wasn't for the taste. I, I don't, I don't, I don't play, I don't favor the taste of alcohol at all. Still to this day, um, it was all for the effects. Um, so that 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 was just my first experience. Moving right along, uh, I mean, I got to a point in my life where I was a big sports player. My my, I was born in Germany. Um, my mom's full, my mom's full German, my dad's full Mexican. He joined the army at an early age. They came from alcoholic uh, backgrounds, but uh, they chose not to go that route, which is really awesome because I never got to 
I never was raised around that stuff. You know what I mean? I was never raised around drugs. I was never raised. My dad was uh, full-blown, you know, take care of the family stuff. My mom was, uh, you know, super excited to be a part of that. Uh, so they took care of me being the firstborn. It's just me and my sister. And uh, I was the baby. So uh, I got into sports and I played them very well till I got to about high school. Um, so for me, being that we went from Germany to the United States every two years, Germany to accommodate my mom, then the United States somewhere. Uh, been a, I've been to a lot of a lot of uh, states, and every two years we get my dad. We get transferred back to Germany, back to the United States, back to Germany. So I never really attached myself to anybody, but I did attach myself to sports, and so I got really good at it. Um, we ended. My dad ended up retiring out here in California. Um, it was there that I was in junior high. I still played sports. I still didn't have to worry because you don't have to worry about grades and stuff until you hit high school to keep playing sports. And I was still never big on school. So once I hit high school, um, my grades kept me out of sports. That's taken away the, the only thing I felt that I had going for myself. Um, the only way I knew how to make friends was in sports. The only way I knew how to communicate with people was through sports. Um, I get to high school, sports was no longer an issue because my grades were too low. And I had no intentions of building them back up. I loved PE and I loved math. You know what I mean? Um, so took away the sports. Next thing I know, I have to find myself. I'm like a chameleon. I've learned that my body, me, I'm like a chameleon. I can fall into a group and, and, and feel comfortable with somebody. And the group that I fell into with next was the ones that was involved in the partying, the ones that was involved with the drinking and the smoking and the using and everything like that. And it was really easy to get into because as long as you had something, people were willing to be your friend. And in high school, those were fun times. You know what I mean? Um, there was no shutting down the bars. I was too young to go to a bar, but there was no shutting down anybody's party house either. We was there all night. Um, and it progressed. And it was just like when I took that first drink, I remember I did not drink at all whatsoever for the taste. There wasn't a good taste in drink out there for me. Um, the using came because it allowed me to, 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 to drink more and more, but then, um, yeah, I don't know. I just know that I never drink for the taste. I drink because something inside of me felt that if everybody else was doing it, I needed to do it too. I needed to fit in with a crowd and I needed to fit in with, with them fast. Um, and that's what I did. Um, found myself getting in a lot of trouble then after that, like serious trouble, juvenile hall, jail, um, trying to send me to therapy and all that stuff. Um, I remember being so scared going to juvenile hall and, and until the first time was over. Then it became natural. I remember getting sent to jail for the first time, super scared, fear, um, until I started going back more and more that it became a check-in with people that I knew. You know what I mean? It was weird. Uh, so it became a comfortable zone, so it didn't even matter. So now my life is built on, this is my only, me going to jail was, I learned my only chance to get uh, recovery, but I didn't know what recovery was the first couple times I was going. I just knew when I went in there, I was so scared that I didn't want to put anything in my system that would take me out of the reality of something could happen at any given moment here. I need to be on my toes. So I always stayed clean when I was locked up. Um, I guess I watched too many of those uh, prison movies when I was growing up. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, so I, I always had that opportunity. And what, what I learned is I, I got into recovery uh, probably in 2005. Before then I got out on a couple of times and went to a couple of meetings, dropped my meeting slip off, found out I didn't have to stay for the meeting. 
and I come back get a pick pick it up in an hour and a piece of course that way. Um, that didn't last too long until I finally got sent to a couple programs. One of them was the Salvation Army out in San Jose, California. Six month program that I didn't care for for five and a half months. I didn't care for it because it was something different and I would have to change right away. You know what I mean? And I wasn't ready for that. I was more comfortable back in my cell with the people that I knew, uh, opposed to going to a different town. I was from Salinas, California. So San Jose is about 45 minutes away north. And I didn't know anybody out there. I never ventured out that far. I stayed to where I was comfortable. Um, but I found myself in recovery out there five and a half months of actually trying to do a 12-step program. And I got to uh, the last two months. And in order to graduate, I had to do a step four. I didn't know what a step four was. I loved going to meetings. I found out meetings were cool. You know what I mean? I was there for all the wrong reasons, though. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we called them skirt meetings. You know what I mean? We never wanted to go to a men's meeting. <laughs> so I found myself at what was called skirt meetings. And, and, and all it took was one, for one of them girls to catch, catch my attention. And then the whole meeting is out the door. Because now I'm just focusing on her. Um, graduating that program, I had decided to stay there. Because you know what? I had found six months of recovery. It wasn't good recovery, but it was six months of not using. You know what I mean? Six months of not drinking. Six months of, I just built brand new friends that were all trying to do the same thing. Well, at least, you know, there's 102 people at that, at that program at any given time. So uh, it was real easy to be, to fit in with people that's there for the same reason. And that was probably just to get out of jail in the beginning, but it ended up changing lives. Um, so I went to the aftermath there and, and stayed in, in the, the sober living house after that. Then I got with my kid's mom and we had a bunch of kids and I did the family thing. Now I'm, I'm doing really good. I love recovery. I started to love recovery and everything that's given me because it's given me uh, a wife. It's given me some kids. Um, my family's happy again. You know, I didn't, I wasn't tearing down walls and, and, and stuff like that. But what I learned after getting out of that program is that I wanted to be a part of society again. And, 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 and with the sports world, it was football. I love going to football to go uh, watch football games. And I noticed uh, barbecues and everything, it felt just right to have a beer there. So it was at that moment in time I realized, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. I mean, I didn't get sent to jail because I was drinking. I didn't get sent to programs because I was drinking. I got sent because I was high as a kite and I was running around the streets at 3 in the morning. That's the main reason why I was out there and uh, going back to jail and causing and doing dumb stuff in the middle of nobody hours. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, I became, I became an alcoholic, I guess you could say. I was doing it, having fun. We're watching barbecues or having, having family come over. We're drinking, we're having, we're having good times and everything. And, uh, it just, it, it happened like that for a couple of years, just drinking on the weekends and then drinking at barbecues and everything. But then there was that one moment when I went to go watch my brother-in-law play football out of town with uh, his younger brother and me and the younger brother were drinking the whole way there. And I was so wasted that I knew that the, I knew that I knew where the stuff was. Let's just say that. And then, so I, I told, I said, look, man, I know you got something I know. And I'm, I'm, I'm very wasted right now and I need to, I need to get some. And so he's like, no, no, I can't do it. And I was like, come play me like a fool. Um, and I ended up doing some. I ended up doing some uh, some meth. 
uh, <laughs> who would have thought? I drank, I, I, I drank myself right back into a needle in my arm. You know what I mean? Uh, I would have never thought that. I was not an I was not an alcoholic until until I did that, and uh, and that went onto a bender. And it doesn't it didn't happen to me for it doesn't happen overnight. It didn't happen to where I just started just going running the gun. And no, it took time. It's like I started using on the weekends, and I got away with it, which is crazy. Once I got away with it, when there's no consequences behind it, I'm like, okay, well that was kind of cool. So I tried it the weekend after. And then I tried it the weekend after. And then after that, it became twice on the weekends. And then it became three times, you know, it was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then it started getting into work. Um, my kid's mom, who was my wife at that time, she uh, she found out about it. She uh, ended up doing the same thing because she was in recovery as well. So I kind of I kind of brought it back into the house and ruined the family. I, I always beat myself up because I, I ruined the family. You know what I mean? I ruined what I thought I put back, what I put together. And uh, her addiction takes her a different way than mine. Um, so we ended up separating really fast and, and just had a lot of problems. And the kids were caught in the crossfire. Um, got back down. We, I ended up losing the house, losing the job. Uh, moved back with my parents, brought the kids with me. Um, she's off doing her thing. And uh, all I'm doing down there is just taking up space in my parents' house and causing problems between them two because they know what I'm doing. My family knows what I'm doing and uh, they don't like it. It's becoming a, a problem for my dad. My dad is a straightforward person, loves my mom, been together forever, married for years. And uh, he's telling my mom, you know, we need, he needs to go. You need to stop babying him, enabling him, because that's what she did. You need to stop babying and enabling him. Or, you know, it, we, we might have to, to separate. And when my mom told me that, I felt sad inside, but I wasn't ready to change still. It's like, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? Because I was being selfish, you know what I mean? Uh, Self-centered and everything else that you can read in the in the book. Uh, so, uh, got back with the kid's mom. One more try, we tried it again, and we decided to move out to Utah. You know, because uh, I got that crazy thought, we both had that crazy thought high in our addiction that uh, California is the problem. We know too many people out here. If we stick around California, we're doomed. We got nothing going for us out here except for just going back to jail and keeping in more trouble. So California is a problem. So we packed up our stuff and we ended up leaving. Um, not knowing that I'm bringing me with me. And I, I didn't even know what that was until I found recovery, which is a cool thing. But um, so we came out here and uh, figured that Utah was a place with Mormons, a lot, of, a lot of religion. So we have a good chance of staying sober out here. You know, they probably don't have drugs out here because of all the religion that's out here. That was a mistake that we found out real soon. Uh, being out here for about six months, it didn't take long before we found just one person that could always get it. So the 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 the, the fight to to stay sober didn't didn't last nothing but a thought is all it was. Because as soon as we reached out here, that's kind of the first thing we looked for. Um, ended up becoming homeless after about six months. Um, we couldn't, we couldn't, but we couldn't make it together. Six months homeless, never been out of uh, California, really at a, never been homeless really ever. And found myself out here homeless in the wintertime in Utah and snow. It was crazy. Um, did what I had to do, survives. Uh, Walmart was my number one offender. <laughs> they were, they were my number one victim. Sorry. Uh, I lived at Walmart. I pretty much felt like I, they owed me everything. And I walked in there like I was king of the world and uh, I took whatever I needed and went right behind Walmart 
where I had a little tent set up and, and, and stayed there. And then I wake up in the morning, go back into Walmart and go back. So it was crazy. And, uh, um, yeah, I ended up going to Reno after about a year and a half. Uh, went went down to Reno and I found out I have another addiction. I went down to Reno. I went down to California, right at the borderline of, of, of Nevada and California to go visit somebody. On my way back, I had forty dollars. Ended up putting it in the machine, and I won like sixteen hundred dollars. And all I had was a five hour downtime from the bus. So I ended up staying there. I was like, well, I'm gonna stay here for two week for two days since I got all this money. I just won. It's, it's, you know, check out Reno. Um. The crazy part is that I called this girl up from California and I told her to come meet me out there in Reno. I paid for a ticket to come out there already. Uh, she All she had to do was catch the bus the first morning, right in the morning, and then I'll, I'll meet her at the bus stop. That night, I ended up buying some dope. I ended up drinking and I ended up cashing in. By the end, by about four o'clock in that morning, I had cashed in the room that I had paid for for two days, cashed that out, was fat broke. I met this girl at the bus stop with the story that, you know what, I have nothing for us. All I had was the ticket that you came out here on and I couldn't cash that in just to keep you back out there. Otherwise, so this girl, she had built a resentment and what happened, I ended up being homeless on in Reno for the next eight months, um, sleeping in the train tracks and uh, every little bit of money I had would go towards gambling or would go towards uh, using. Um, finally got a call from the kid's mom uh, this was kind of a life-changing moment for me. She talked me into coming back up here because never have I been away from my kids for so long. Um, I, I've been around them since they were born, uh, through the good and the bad. Uh, so when I came back up here, I ended up going right behind Walmart where I know is best, and I had a tent set up out there. And um, I remember it was hot, and I remember the kids coming to the lake, right to the to the river right there, and we went swimming. And uh, we were having a good time, and they were happy to see their dad and everything. Uh, it was one of those moments of, uh, you know, this is what it's all about for about an hour. It only lasted about an hour. You know what I mean? I had a great time with them for about an hour until that high came down. I knew I had some in the tent. Now my, after that hour, my whole head is thinking, man, will they, don't they have somewhere they need to go? Don't, don't, I mean, shouldn't mom take them somewhere else? You know, you guys don't. Don't got something to do. All I wanted for them to do was leave after an hour so I can go get high. It's a crazy thought, you know what I mean? Because I love my kids to death these days. To even look back on that, it's, it's like, wow. But that's where I was in my addiction. Nothing mattered except for me getting my next fix. And I didn't care who was around that it was important to me. It didn't matter when I was coming down. Um, I just wanted to be alone. So anyways, I ended up getting... Um, <clears throat> Ended up catching a couple cases. I found myself in jail out here in Utah. Now, this is not a check-in spot for me because I don't know nobody out here. So I went into jail in Utah, and I didn't know anybody. And I got five charges from five different counties from five different Walmarts, <laughs> which is crazy. So when I got locked up, I, what was crazy was that I remembered this is my chance at sobriety. This is my only chance to get recovery again. I've been through this, Daniel. You've been through this so many times back home. Every time. And then when you would get out, all you did was bump into somebody and it was, you know, OK, yeah, sure. I'll go with you to the hotel. Everybody's over there. Let's go hang out. And that was it. My, my, my recovery was gone. Any chance that I had to stay sober was gone. Well, out here. Somehow, some way I managed to talk my mom 
into to bailing me out. She sent the money to get me out on bail. After I got bounced around, I had a bail. And I got out and I reached out to one person. I don't want to say her name, but she was in recovery for a while. And she, she directed me to the Alano Club. She said, Daniel, when you get out, you can't stay at my house. You know what I mean? You've already abused that. You can't stay at my house. What you have to do is go to the homeless shelter. Um, but as soon as you get up from the homeless shelter, go to the Alano Club. I'm like, all right. She's all look for some guy named John B. And uh, and she's he's been sitting there for years. So when I got to the Alano Club, I I walked in there and I asked the guy if I could use the phone because I wanted to call this place called Valley Camp. And uh, John was there and he started explaining this to me. And uh, greatest thing ever was the decision to to reach out to him. So I got on the waiting list and by I got out on bail on Monday. By Friday, um, I was accepted and I was going to get picked up at five o'clock in front of the Alano Club. Now, mind you, this is one of the important parts for me, my any, my any links moments for me. When I got out on bail on Monday, I immediately, as I went to the Alano Club, I knew my kids were close by. I would reach out and play with them and hang out with them at the library, at the park for that whole week, you know, uh, for hours. And I didn't have to worry about going to use because I was I haven't used for quite some time now since I've been locked up. So I spent most of my time with them that whole week. I told them what I was doing. They were all excited until five o'clock that Friday, uh, that Friday afternoon when uh, the guy came to pick me up to take me to Valley Camp is when uh, I was getting in the car and my kids start breaking down, crying, daddy, don't go, daddy, don't go. You know, I built a relationship with them within a week and my heart just fell. My heart fell because I was thinking that now my head starts playing with me. You know what? You don't need to go to this program. You need to take care of these kids. You know what I mean? You need to stay back and be a man and, and whatever you got to do. Look, look what you just built these kids up to. You need to stay with them and take care of them now. And then the, another part of me is telling me, Dad, you're still homeless. You ain't got nothing going for you. If you don't go to this program and give it a chance, then there's, you, it won't be long before you find yourself into temptation again. So as I'm getting in the car and we're driving away, the kids are running. I'm, I'm, I'm just holding back tears. That was my any given moment. You know what I mean? My, my any lengths moment, you know what I mean? Uh, one of the hardest things to do was to, to, to leave them behind and, and try to take this new chapter into my life of recovery without them even being a part of it for the next three months. You know, tell an alcoholic or an addict he's going to be away for three months, has to leave his kids. How many things I have to take care of before I leave? How many things I'm going to be missing out on in those three months? You know what I mean? That's a long time. You know what I mean? One day at a time, I've never heard of that. I'm thinking three months have gone for my kids. You know what? This, there's, I don't know what to expect. Maybe I'll last a month. <laughs> Maybe I'll give it a chance. On the way up to Valley Camp, I remember the guy that's taking me up there told me, uh, you know, uh, Daniel, this three months may seem like it's a long time, but it could change the rest of your life. And I said, cool, man. I, and, I, and I took that opportunity. So I went up to Valley Camp for three months. During that process, I went up with a little a shoulder backpack uh, with clothes and everything that I owned. That was it. Uh, went up there and I took the opportunity to actually listen. I picked up a sponsor. Didn't know what a sponsor was. Picked up a sponsor. Uh, I got into the steps. I got to that fourth step. Uh, again, I got honest. You know what I mean, uh, I got really honest and uh, I broke down and told I, I had a lot of pages of stuff that needed to be done and and I did it, you know, and, uh, and I said this in meetings before when I was done with my fifth step, the heavens didn't open up. It wasn't even a sunny day. It rained on me that day. You know, it was a, 
But when I came back to the to the cabin where all the guys were, and they're all looking at me like, how'd it go? You know what? My head was a little higher. You know what I mean? My shoulders stood a little bit more broad. You know what I mean? I felt a relief. Some kind of relief just came off my back. You know what I mean? So I completed the steps there. I, I, I started to reach out to my hand because I was told that fellowshipping is a vital part of my recovery. So everybody that came up to Valley Camp, even though I didn't know them, I went up to them and greeted them as if they were visitors to this place. And they've been up there probably a hundred times more than me. And by doing so, when I left Valley Camp, it enabled me to, to put myself out to, to be known by a lot of people. Um, so my very first meeting when I came down here at the Alana Club was a seven o'clock meeting the very next day. Um, and somebody knew me. You know what I mean? And it felt great because they knew me from Valley Camp. You know what I mean? So I felt a part of, I believe that for me, being a part of, uh, of something has always been important in my life. I have to be a part of something. You know what I mean? Feel, feel, uh, feel like I belong. You know what I mean? And that's what happened with, with recovery. Um, I didn't get, I didn't come out of recovery, out of the Valley Camp and, and, and life changed dramatically. It didn't. I went straight back to the homeless shelter. I stayed there for another nine months at the homeless shelter, but every morning I'd wake up and I'd go to the club. And during that, uh, after that nine months, or during that nine months, around the seven month mark, I got a job. Once I got the job, then I was able to start saving some money. On my one year mark, uh, the promises started really coming true because on my one year mark was the same day that I ended up getting keys to my first apartment out here. Um, uh, it was about two weeks later, my kids, I brought them over to show them the apartment. Um, they came over, they stayed the night, and they haven't left since. Uh, this was in night 2019, and it's 2021. My kids still stay with me. Uh, no, actually, 2020, when I got the apartment, March 6th, 2020, my one-year mark. And my kids haven't left since. And now I, pre I get to appreciate them a whole lot more. Like, they come with me to meetings. We go out places. We have fun. I mean, um, I don't know. I, I just know that these promises, they seem extravagant in the, in the beginning. Yes, they sure do. They seem super extravagant, but you know what? As long as I keep working this program, and there's one one slogan I'll end with. You know, there's one thing that I saw at Valley Camp that sits very true with me, something I kind of live by. It says, the, ver the first thing I put in front of my recovery is the second thing I lose. And I threw a little, I understood that because if I put my recovery first above my kids and everything else, then everything that comes after my recovery will get treated first class. And, um, that's where I'm at with my kids right now and my family and everybody that I built a relation with, relationship with. Uh, they get the best of me and I get to be someone to them. So I don't know if that got a lot of that, but, uh, you know, but it's just going to leave it at that right now. <laughs> Daniel, thank you, man. Yeah. I think that, uh, that we can get a lot from that. I did get a lot from that. Yeah, for did sure. <laughs> what, what did you think? I, I just, I imagine that state of homelessness for so long. Like there's so, so much behind Walmart, you know, just living back there and being homeless in Reno. And, and, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show, like, fuck, you know, that poor girl. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> and we're sorry for laughing. Like she's, she probably wouldn't find it very funny, but I can identify with being right. Daniel. Yeah. And, Come on, I got sixteen hundred whole yeah. dollars. Yep, in Reno, mm -hmm. and and before the next fucking sun comes up, it's gone. Yeah, and she's on on her way. Yep. Yeah, and there's nothing I can do. About nothing. It. Yeah, you know, because I'm completely powerless over my disease, and so, yeah, I mean, 
You know, it does, and it didn't start out like that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, no. You know what? What I liked about his story was he talked about how how uh, the one thing that you know that he used to really hang his hat on in the early days was sports. Yeah, he moved around a lot, and so he didn't really get. He wasn't able to get to know anybody or or depend on anybody. And the way that he was able to make those connections was through sports. Right, and then sports were removed mm-hmm. because of the great thing, right? Yeah. And so not having that anymore, it was like, what, what, how did he now fill what? that void? Yeah, now what? He didn't know how to fill it. And so, you know, he had, he had the, the gene. The he gift. Had the gene, the gift, if you will. And, uh, and, and yeah, and look where, you know, look where it took him. Yeah. He hated the taste of alcohol. Yeah. It was all about the effect. I yeah, it's so funny. Like, it's like, yeah, you hate the taste. Well, you got to drink through that shit, dude. Yeah. What's what's the taste have to do with getting drunk? Right, obviously, you know. And he was he was a great example of, you know, like we're cut from the same cloth kind of thing, you know. And then like getting starting to get in trouble, and I could identify with that a lot, you know. It becoming commonplace for me to be locked up, you know, was no longer scary. It became normal, and and learning to navigate through the system. Yeah, he talked about how, you know, like any time he got sent back to jail, I was like, cool, I'll get to check in with my yeah, peeps. Yeah, whatever. All right. It's just... No no big, no no sweat off my sack, no mm-hmm. big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, back in jail, back yeah. out, back in jail. And then, you know, finding that little bit of sobriety for a time, being convinced that it was one thing over another. Yeah, I'm an addict, not an alcoholic. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and proving that successfully for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, barbecues, yeah. you know, and I, I can, I can kind of imagine in, in my head that the way that that looked for him, right. Because it looks the same for me, yeah. you know, for me, it's, it's, it's that whole, like, see, my will is stronger than all I have to do is stay away from this one thing and I'll be fine. And then that fateful day will always arrive, you know, and it's just like he said, you know, I drank my way all the way back to a needle in my arm. And, and that's what happened to him. Right. And then he realizes now he's an alcoholic and an addict sets up shop behind Walmart entitlement. I'll just go in and take whatever I want. Who would have thought Walmart would be such a resource? Uh, I do. Yeah. Like I've seen it, you know, I've seen it a lot. Seen, you know, there's pretty crazy Walmarts. Walmart knows. They know they're fucked. Right. Yeah. Can't have a homeless camp behind Walmart and not know about it. Well, sure. Yeah. There's no doubt they knew about it. It's a, it's a whole thing, you know, but, but you know, when you're entitled in, in a drug induced fucking mindset, of course that's what we do. Right. And, and, you know, getting to that place where he was, you know, enjoying the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Down by the river, having, having some sense of normalcy. Like, Oh man, this is the greatest day ever. Yeah. Also, mm-hmm. I need you to go. Yeah. Yeah. I need you guys to go away. And then, uh, you know, the progression of that progression of that and going up to, you know, where he finally goes into Valley camp and Valley camp's awesome. Like Valley yeah. camp is a local, it's not a, it's not a normal, treatment center it's not a treatment center it's a more of a retreat yeah i guess you would call it um, it's non-profit 
Um, and a lot of guys get sober yeah. up there in our area. It's for people that can't afford to pay for their own recovery. Uh, there's there's some rules and stipulations, but you you know it's 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 awesome. You mm-hmm. basically go up there and you work the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, yeah. With a sponsor, it's in the woods. It's up in the mountains. It's beautiful, on some beautiful grounds. You know, it's very spiritual. And but before he went up there, the old bugaboo inside his head tried to convince him. Right. That the the kids were kids. more important right. than the sobriety, and and he's now under the impression and understanding that anything he puts, you know, the first thing he puts in front of his sobriety is the second thing he'll lose. So, yeah. and, and we've heard that before. What that mm-hmm. means is if you decide to get high over anything, you will lose everything. Well, and, and what I, what I liked about that is he talked about how it was his any length moment, his any links. And I, I feel like I have a few of those one, one specifically that I remember always you know that was just this defining moment like okay what are you going to do yeah and it's those defining moments that i feel like really for me established the foundation that my recovery is built upon yeah you know like if i it could have gone the other way yeah and you know because it didn't i came out stronger and that was his any length moment and if you go into recovery that willing you're gonna do well yeah and he did. And he, he did. Dude, like hearing about how he, he then left Valley Camp and was willing to go back to the shelter. Like, Stayed okay, sober in the shelter. I've still got to go back to like, you know, like my, my circumstances didn't magically change while I was in there. I'm still homeless. Like I got to go back, go back to the shelter and do everything that he's got to do there for, you know, another nine months. Sounds like, right. Cause he got into this apartment on his one year anniversary. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. You know, his kids came and they never left. Yeah. Promises. <laughs> Coming true, dude. It's, it's just it. awesome. Yeah. Just so awesome to see. And there's something about that story that just moves me. Yeah. Could have been so different. Sure. Yeah. Usually is. It usually is. Yeah. Usually goes the other way. So. So thank you, man. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, that was awesome. Good to see you. Good to have you. Thank you so much. <sighs> Good shit. Yeah, I'm feeling a little. I got uh, I got the chills there for a second. Good. Mm-hmm. Resonates. That's, that's how I know it's a good show. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. Yeah, thank you, Cameron, for coming out. Thanks for filling all the feels with me. Reminded me that the promises are real. Yeah. Thanks for doing your announcer voice. It was pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Hopefully, I'll cut that out. But no, you work on it, and then we'll do it again. Here, do that shit. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Rylan. I mean, in turn. Rylan has a full name now. Thanks. Uh, what's, what's Jordan? The, oh, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Been here for a minute. Yeah. I, I like you most days. Thanks, Willie. You're welcome. And uh, you know what? I think we'll wrap it out. With that, remember that you are worth the work. We will see you on the other side. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.